This episode may contain themes that are unsettling for some listeners and includes dialogue that is inappropriate for children under 14. Listener discretion is strongly advised. I'm Alyssa. And I'm Brooke. And this is, for God's sake... Don't drink the Jonesy juice. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just spent, I don't know, like, what, five minutes um, trying to remember how our intro went because <laughs> we we would think we'd have it down by now, but we don't. So. 42 episodes in, or 43, 42, 40, I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, we still don't know what we're doing. And we had to listen to two episodes, like the beginning, to make sure that we knew what we were doing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, anyways, um, how was your weekend, Brooke? My weekend was pretty good. Um, what did I do? Well, Saturday, we went to my granddaddy's 75th birthday party. Alyssa and Scotty also joined us. And Titus. And Titus. Well, I didn't say everybody that came in my crew. I wasn't trying to leave anybody out. <laughs> but you said we, and then you said and Alyssa and Scotty. So well, in that case, you'd have to say Titus. Yeah, and Titus. Okay, okay. But the George Morillos I mean. joined. The George Morillos. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to my granddaddy's, and Scotty and Alyssa and Titus came also. <laughs> Thank you for including him. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Which was actually really fun. I was very much dreading the drive there because they live like four hours away. Mm-hmm. And I hate car rides. I hate car rides so much. Like, I don't, I'm, I have a five hour car ride coming up Friday. And then I have like a six or seven hour one coming up in September. And I am just dreading. See, I don't it. mind car rides. I actually like that part of like going on vacation. I used to. Yeah. I used to, but. I don't know. With God. kids, though, it's it can be very annoying. Well, it's not even Titus because he does really well when we drive long distances. I mean, we drove, you know, 10 hours. To... My girls do not. I was so yeah. sick of them <laughs> yesterday. I bet you were. Like, because we had that, like, three-and-a-half-hour ride to Tennessee on Saturday, and then Sunday, we were in the car again for, like, three hours total. Oh, my God. Know? And yeah. I'm just like, I'm so ready to get out of the car with you guys. Oh, my God. But I don't know. Typically, I don't mind. I don't know what what's wrong with me. I just, like, I don't know. Sitting in the car for too long hurts my back, Yeah. and I get bored, and I meant to charge my laptop before we left so that I could play games on my computer. But um, mm-hmm. instead, it was like on 25% battery. So I just did research the entire, like literally, I looked up and we had like 59 minutes left on the drive. And I was, at, so I was totally immersed for like two and a half hours mm-hmm. or like three hours. And um, uh, Scotty, um, well, I had just finished, and he was like, we're now at the 59-minute mark. And I was like, holy crap, I didn't mm-hmm. even realize. So the drive up there wasn't bad, but the drive home. It feels like it takes, like, double time. Yes, it was. And we got stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic on 75. Mom said they did the next day. We didn't hit any of that. We There was, um like, but a it, wreck. Um, it was also really late for us. Yeah, yeah. well, it was around... 
I don't know, maybe at like 11. Oh, yeah, y'all left the next day, too. No. Or we left this the same day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did y'all stay the night? No, but we left really late. Oh. Like, we didn't get home till like, 3 in the morning or something. Oh, wow. 2 in the morning, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we. I mean, we got home, and Titus didn't go to sleep the entire time on the ride back home. Mm-hmm. And then we get home, and we're trying to get him to sleep. He finally goes to sleep, and me and Scotty just sit on the couch, and we stayed up. It was, like, 1 o'clock at that point, and we stayed till like, 3.30, mm-hmm. and then went to bed, but... Yeah, it was a long weekend for me, too. <laughs> a yeah. lot of car rides. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today, I napped, and then I went shopping. <laughs> oh, fun. And tomorrow, I plan to be productive. We'll see. What? Shopping sounds productive to me. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> we had Titus's open house today. I know I've already told you about it, but um, mm-hmm. I'm excited that my sweet little five-year-old is in kindergarten now. I can't believe it. Oh, my gosh. Like, it, I was thinking about it, um, like, a few weeks ago, and I'm like, wow, he's in the school grade where it's mandatory for him to go to school. Right. Like, the past two years when he was in preschool and pre-K. He didn't have to. Right. Like, legally. Right, yeah. And so now it's like, he has to, and it's just such a... That's crazy. Kindergarten. I know. And then I have a high schooler. I know, it's insane. Kindergarten and high school. What? I'll never forget little eight-year-old Ansley when I first met her. Oh my gosh. And she gave me all those presents. Literally, the first time I ever hung out with... I guess maybe it was, like, the third time I ever hung out with Scotty. Mm -hmm. Um... He was living with Brooke at the time, and uh, me and Scotty used to stay up all night long hanging out, and then I would go home at like 8 or 9 a.m., and then he would go to sleep and then go to work around 3. Mm-hmm. And um, so one day I go over there, and it's like, I don't know, maybe 10 p.m., and Ansley just, um, she instantly loved me. She made me draw her a picture, <laughs> and then she brought me three gifts one was a rock uh-huh. <laughs> and it said it had like a four-leaf clover on it and it said something about being lucky oh. and then she gave me i don't know what it was it was like a little butterfly dish that i think you put your earrings on it or some <laughs> i don't really know but to use stuff right and then the other one i cannot remember what it was but i still have them to this day because mm. i thought it was just the sweetest thing ever like this little girl just met me and she already loved me <laughs> so sweet is super sweet hmm. but anyways um sounds I'm like, like sweating over here i okay so a sudden wave of like hot same in my body so oh my god like you know when you can feel it radiate down from like yes. your shoulders to yeah this i've got sweaty off. upper lip right now okay i don't have that but, <laughs> but my armpits do your armpits sweat really bad no not really okay mine do like so bad all the time even if i'm cold they'll sweat mm-hmm. it's ridiculous no I've, I've got like chin sweat and like upper lip sweat and like boob sweat right now i have the boob sweat too mm-hmm. i've never been one to really sweat on my face though yeah i've ne- i don't understand why i do like mm. even when i go to the gym you know how people will have like sweat uh-huh. rolling i've never really oh, had I that. do bad i do bad i'm gonna turn down the ac or something because there's nothing blowing out I'm totally fine it's with like that. It's like muggy. It is very muggy in here. So yeah, let me do that. Okay, I'll pause it really fast. And we're back. Sorry. Well, I guess not really sorry. It's not like we were gone for 10 minutes like I just was on air. True. <laughs> <laughs> it was literally like a second for you guys, but sorry for the delay. Right. Whatever. We had to try to turn on the AC because we're dying. Menopause at 34 is fun. 
I'm just fat. And... Oh, stop. <laughs> Same, though. <laughs> no, for real, though. I am in full-blend menopause at 34. I had a hysterectomy three years ago. But anyway. <laughs> They're probably like, menopause? What? <laughs> They're like, Brooke is how old? <laughs> 57. Didn't I say you were like 60? <laughs> yes. I'm not. I'm 34, guys. <laughs> You'll but, be 35 this year? Mm-hmm. Dude, how do you feel about almost being 40? Ew. <laughs> how are you going to feel when you turn 40? I don't know. You know, it's funny. When we were in Chattanooga, we uh, for some reason, we were sitting around the table talking about, like, age difference. And we are talking about Jared and I and how, you know, he's 45 right now. So mm-hmm. he, we're, like, basically 11 years apart. Right. We're really, like, 10 years and, like, 11 months, months. Yeah. But it's basically 11 years. So, um when he is 50, I'll be 39. And I started thinking and I kept looking at him and I was like, ew, what? You're going to be 50? I want to be 39. He's like, are you ready to throw your chips in yet? Like, what's up? Like, <laughs> And I'm like, I don't know. I might be reconsidering. I was just messing with him. But I was like, holy crap, what a thought. Like right now, yeah. like 34 and 45, like sounds fine. But I'm like, I'll still be in my 30s and you're going to be 50. <laughs> right. Well, but not for long. You'll be. I know. In, yeah. 40. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Well, no, for a year. Yeah. Not for long. Yeah, I know. But still, that is kind of a weird thought. But it's yeah. not. Yeah. I'm just kidding. It's not a weird thought at all. <laughs> but, you know, he doesn't seem like he's no. 11 years older than you. Actually, me and somebody were talking about that. Um, I think it was, it might have been Abby. Um, she was telling me how much she liked him because you know she met him at Titus's mm-hmm. birthday, and um, I was like, yeah, the, he's like ten years older than her. And I was, and she was like, no way. And I was like, yeah, yeah but he doesn't look it. Yeah, he and doesn't. When you're forty, you're not gonna look forty either. So yeah, it was funny when you know, you I guess you saw him doing all like the backflips and stuff off the mm-hmm. the diving board at Granddaddy's party, and James looked at me and he said, does he still get carded when he goes to buy beer? <laughs> I was like, I know, right? He's just a kid. He is like he's a, a nimble little fucker. Like, how are you doing that? Like, he was like, you know, right at the same. Like, him and my twenty-year-old cousin were doing the same things, like athletically. And I'm like, how the hell are you doing that? I could never. <laughs> Me either. Jared is like this little like garden elf. <laughs> garden elf. <laughs> he's gonna love that because he's so. Um, nimble, as you said, but he is also just the most chipper motherfucker on the planet. Like this dude, I came over and I was like in a sour mood, just kind of didn't have the greatest day. And he just mowed the entire lawn at Brooke's house and then sits down and he's just like, just talking just so happily. And I'm like, oh my God, stop. He really (laughs) is. It's great though. It, It is such a like... It just brings you up if you're down. You know what I mean? It's hard to be in a bad mood around him. And yeah. that's so awesome. No, he's a good guy. And I mean, definitely having somebody around who's always positive because mm-hmm. me and Scotty can be very apathetic. And when both people are apathetic, you just yeah. feed off of it and it never and gets And it's just better. a miserable, lonely like <laughs> existence. Right. But when you have somebody who's like very positive Mm -hmm. just all the time it's definitely something i've never experienced and i try to be a positive person you know Mm -hmm. but i still get down but like i've never seen him down i'm like "Mm, you okay (laughs) yeah i mean i'm sure it happens but 
I don't know. It's it's funny. It's like, and, and this dude, y'all, like, Alyssa and I both experience, like, anxiety. Like, mostly, like, yep. social anxiety. <laughs> this dude has none, okay? Like, I'm like, how does it feel to be Jared? Just, you just don't have anxiety? Like, how does that work? How do you just do? Yeah. And, like, not be fearful of yeah, it? Just, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I can't comprehend it. I've never been that way in my entire life. I've never no. just, like, sometimes I watch people who obviously like i'm sure jared has his anxieties or whatever but Mm -hmm. when it comes to social stuff i watch people who and it's normal stuff they Mm -hmm. just do normal stuff but i'm like how do you do that i want to be like that because i've never in my life he literally talks to everyone like the other day you ran to the dollar general while i was in the shower to pick up some dog food Mm -hmm. and uh when we were in the car later he goes yeah when i ran up to dollar general earlier um there were some bikers parked outside and you know i chatted with him for a minute at the exact same moment ansley's in the back seat and we both say of course you did (laughs) (laughs) like he talks to everyone we're just like oh my god (laughs) i mean it's great but like i'll be in the background like i'm gonna go do my thing you keep talking (laughs) right i mean i remember that one time i came over here and he ran to ingles and he was like yeah while i was there i talked to this one family and i'm like yeah never have i ever been in a grocery store and and just just talked to a family to a a family and and just spoke with them i mean never like if i'm passing by somebody and i'm like oh excuse me and they'll be like oh my god i like your makeup and i'll be like oh my god i like yours too and then we go our separate ways yeah. and never talk again yeah yeah but i would never just go up to somebody and be like oh hi my name's Alyssa." and <laughs> guess what i ate for breakfast today <laughs> oh that's what you had cool what we should cook it together sometime <laughs> uh, you want to come over <laughs> one day he's literally gonna bring back like a party of people from like walmart and you're gonna be like, like what the hell who yeah. is this oh i don't know i just met them and they were cool they wanted to come over and swim and and then they leave with your tv oh god <laughs> we're just playing I, i'm sure he knows I'm oh sure i know i joke with him about it all the time but that's such a good way to be because it sucks it really sucks when you just are so just self-conscious and just so afraid of like when I was in high school I didn't I never raised my hand for anything and um if I had to use the bathroom like if I had to pee I would hold it because I yeah. was not about to tell my teacher I had to pee yeah that's that was, Ansley yeah literally I would wait till lunchtime and then mm-hmm. even then sometimes I'd be sitting at the table like oh my god if I get up and go to the bathroom people are gonna watch me yeah. go to the bathroom <laughs> oh that's Ansley 100% and it's like they're not they're there's gonna people have no here yeah <laughs> it's so crazy but I feel the same way like when I changed into my swimsuit I stood in the bathroom for a minute talking myself up to go outside to oh get in gosh. the pool because there's so many people out there and I'm like they're all gonna look at me when I go out there and I'm sure none of them are like oh my god like what a f- fat bitch oh my God. <laughs> but i still just get scared because i mean i've never really had that thought about you know any other person no. that i've seen but and, and that's the thing we have to remember is nobody's really looking at you nobody's talking about you it just gets in your head that they are you know yeah i used to be a lot like that too now i'm just you know i've gotten a lot better about it but that's what i try to drill into ansley's head like they don't care you know right. nobody is looking at you dude i promise you, you well know? when i think about other people doing it like with ansley i'm always like ansley they don't care nobody cares no- if you climb up there nobody's gonna notice yeah like, if you go throw that away, nobody's going to watch you. Right. But like, then when I go to do it. You're thinking the same thing. Oh, God, yeah. everybody's looking at me. Oh, God. I just want to throw away my apple. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mm. It's crazy how that works. And then you're thinking they're judging you for the way you threw away the apple. Yes. Oh my gosh, dude. I overthink things so much that I will actually throw something away weirdly because (laughs) I'm just so like focused, like hyper fixated on how I'm going to throw this apple away. That's hilarious. And no, it's not. It's such a horrible thing to live with. Well, it, it reminds me of something I read one time and I started thinking, I was like, oh my God, that's me. Like, have you ever been walking and you overthink walking and then you start walking weird? Yes. And then you're like, everybody's looking at me walking weird. Yep. That is me (laughs) hardcore like all the time, dude. I'm telling you. Is this really the way you walk? Is everybody else walking like this? Am I supposed to walk like this? You know what I get anxiety over? What? The speed of my windshield wipers. (laughs) If mine doesn't match other people's, I will turn that. Even if I can't see. Is that too aggressive? (laughs) (laughs) Because I have to have mine on full blast at all times when it's raining. And like if if I'm just stopped somewhere Mm -hmm. and I see that the people around me, theirs are just like, Mm-hmm. slowly i'll turn mine down to match because That's i don't want hilarious. them to look at me and be like look at that idiot they're judging me <laughs> they're judging my windshield wiper speed i don't think anyone has been judged harder than the time i ran through the uh the uh pedestrian sidewalk going down the wrong side of the road <laughs> in mcdonough <laughs> that was definitely a time to be judged i would have been i would have wanted to die at oh that moment we talked about this in an episode a long time ago. It's kind of an inside joke at this point, guys. If you right. don't recall, I'm not going to go through the whole story again. But <laughs> Just I drove the wrong way down the fucking road. She went down a one-way. traffic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the bicycle lane. In the bicycle lane. <laughs> okay, I'm like the pedestrian lane, whatever the hell it's called. The sidewalk. I don't fucking know. It was like a bicycle It was lane. literally a bicycle lane. Yeah. It was like six inches wide. I'm so glad a, bice- a cyclist wasn't coming up on me. <laughs> oh god that was hilariously terrible but anyway (laughs) brooke had to pull um, okay anyways (laughs) we're about to tell the whole story again we'll just stop (laughs) okay um now that we have a 20 minute intro is it really 20 minutes it's like 17 (laughs) all right let's get going okay so all the funniness is over now because i'm about to tell a really awful horrific disgusting sad story oh no so let's uh, get your crying pants on. Oh, I didn't wear my crying pants today. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm going to go ahead and cite my sources. Look, two episodes in a row, y'all. Nice. Um, documentingreality.com, theguardian.com, wikipedia, abcnews.com, ratbags.com, and all that's interesting.com. I did a lot, a lot, a lot of research on this one. So I hope it's a good episode. And I hope this is a new uh, story to some of you guys. I found this randomly. I literally am a weirdo. And I googled like the most horrific crimes of all time. I do that too. This is one that popped up. (laughs) (laughs) When I told my daughter what I was covering, she was like, that's lame. That's not even like scary. or I think it's horrific. So horrific. It sounds like I said terrific. I think that's terrific. I think it's horrific. So you guys let me know what you think. All right, here we go. So Candace Tiara Elmore was born on November 19th, 1989 in Lincolnton, North Carolina to teen mom, Angela and Todd Elmore. She and her two siblings, Michael and Chelsea, were born into poverty, marital fights, domestic disturbances, and were physically abused starting very early in life. Oh, gosh. Such as most stories start. Yeah. 
Her siblings were eventually taken away by social services. Not surprisingly, most likely due to her difficult background, a county caseworker once made note of Candace's, and I quote, angry outbursts and rebellion. Oh, no. Candace's parents lost custody over her in 1994, and she was put into a foster home. In 1996, the brown-haired five-year-old was adopted by a single woman named Jean Newmaker. Jean was a pediatric nurse from Durham, North Carolina. Hmm. So it seems like she's finally looking up. On the up and up. Mm -hmm. The well-to-do nurse in her mid-40s just wanted a child of her own to love. I love that phrase. What? Well-to-do Well-to-do. Me and... Elena always say a well-to-do woman. Nice. (laughs) Well-to-do is a good phrase. So uh, she had never been married and she'd never had any children. So she decided she would adopt a little girl just, you know, to love. Candace became Candace Elizabeth Newmaker and Jean took two months off of work to spend with her new daughter. Oh, that's sweet. Mm -hmm. Candace had it all. Finally, a big, nice house, a mom who loved her and anything and everything she could ask for. Good. Her new mom even paid for her to go to the best school in the county. Uh, Candace was in gymnastics, swimming, and ballet, and her new mom took her on several vacations. Good for her. Mm-hmm. Once while vacationing in the mountains, Candace saw a stray dog and asked her mom if she could take it home. They already had two dogs, but by the time they got back to their home, the dog was waiting. Jean had arranged for it to be sent as a surprise. Oh, that's so sweet. At me, though, like adopting every stray cat I ever saw as a kid. <laughs> oh. Um, but as the story goes, it wasn't long before Jean started noticing that something wasn't quite right with Candace. Oh, no. Her behavior and attitude proved difficult at home. Jean claimed that Candace had psychological problems so advanced that she started a fire in her own home. Oh, gosh. She regularly flew into hour-long rages and that she once sexually assaulted two children. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. She told friends that Candace was a assaultive, extremely defensive, and extremely negative child and was quoted as saying, I thought she was deteriorating before my very eyes. I was not prepared for the level of dysfunction I saw in Candace. That is heartbreaking. It really is. Wow. But like adopting a child from that kind of background, I feel like that's kind of what you get, you know? Yeah, I think most of the time. And I mean, if she's sexually assaulting other children, that's probably something that happened to her. Mm-hmm. Hopefully she she put her in therapy. Yeah. Okay. So. She said that the child once pulled down a floor-to-ceiling bookcase, smashing Jean's beloved glass horse collection. Oh, my gosh. Candace's teachers, though, remember an entirely different child, one who was not badly behaved. Her new mother sent her to a mini psychologist and had her treated for several mental illnesses. Candace had gone through several, 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 several counselors, (laughs) medical professionals professionals what the hell and numerous mind-altering drugs but not a whole lot seemed to work that's sad Jean commented that most of candace's therapy sessions would end in candace biting or spitting at the therapist it seemed that candace had severe issues bonding with and trusting her new mother which again would be understandable considering the trauma that she had endured all of her life yeah that makes sense Mm mm-hmm 
She was diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder in 1996. Reactive detachment disorder is a psychiatric disorder that starts before the age of five. It is thought to be caused by the failure of normal bonding with a parent or caregiver during infancy and can cause children to resist forming loving relationships. Huh. I'm wondering if this, I think I researched maybe this specific one. Really? Interesting. Um, well, this disorder shares some features with post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. People at risk include adopted children and those who have been institutionalized. So sad. Mm-hmm. People with this disorder experience difficulties in establishing and maintaining relationships and typically will experience emotional disturbances in social situations. Symptoms include manipulative behavior, failure to make eye contact, persistent lying and stealing, extreme defiance and anger, superficial charm, poor impulse control, cruelty to animals, a lack of conscience, and the inability to give or receive real affection. Dude, that just goes to show that those first few years of your life are so important, so developmentally important. Mm -hmm. Like, it can screw a person up. That Mm -hmm. is, and this is just kind of like a side note, but I was actually watching this video of, um, about how, um, you know, like the crying out method is such a flawed method of, um, neglect. Yeah. And like, so they're basically talking about how um, when you're leaving your baby, you know, to self-soothe, like you, a baby literally cannot self-soothe. Yeah. Like that's just, it just biologically, it's impossible for a baby to self-soothe. Mm-hmm. So at a very young age, they're learning to suppress their wants and their needs and their feelings. Mm-hmm. And then when they get older, you know, it causes anxiety and depression and it, you know, it messes up future relationships mm-hmm. with any kind of person. Absolutely. It so. causes distrust, distrust, <laughs> distrust, <laughs> distrust. But yeah, so like those first few years, God, Super like important. you can, do, and that is always what scared me about being a mom is mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. God, I don't want to fuck this kid up. Seriously. So thinking she had tried just about everything, Jean finally learned of something in January of 2000 that she thought could help Candace. There was a therapist by the name of Connell Watkins in Evergreen, Colorado, 1,000 miles from their home. Watkins specialized in a form of reattachment therapy called rebirthing. So Watkins specialized in a form of reattachment therapy called rebirthing, a treatment for Candace's disorder. The two-week-long therapy would cost a hefty $7,000, but at her wit's end, Jean agreed to sign a contract to make the trek across the country. The therapy began on April 10th when Jean and Candace met with Dr. John John Alston. Alston was a psychiatric and private... (laughs) Austin was a psychiatrist in private practice who also worked with the attachment center at Evergreen, one of the best known attachment treatment centers in clinic treatment clinics in the United States. I'm messing all these words up today. It's okay. Just before arriving in Evergreen, Jean took Candace off Dexedrine, one of the many psychiatric drugs she was on. Dexedrine is a powerful amphetamine. Amphetamine. (laughs) (laughs) Amphetamine used to treat attention deficit disorder. 
Dr. Alston immediately stopped Candace's use of Effexor, an antidepressant, once she, she arrived in Colorado. So she's going off all these medications. Just so suddenly. That's mm-hmm. so dangerous. Oh, yeah. Candace's dosage of Risperdal, which is a calming medication, was doubled on April 11th. A week into the program taking place at Connell Watkins' two-story home, which served as both her home and clinic, Jean and 10-year-old Candace were introduced to compression therapy. This is so, like, scary to me, what I'm about to talk about. Um, It is horrific, and I just think it's a horrible therapy. But uh, this is the kind of uh, a kind of a holding therapy, and it involves a child laying across the laps of or being contained by parents or therapists or both. This is actually something that has been discussed for Titus in therapy because he seeks deep pressure. Oh. And I always say no. Yeah. I always am like, no. And this is even before that because like, I'm like, are you about to describe more mm-hmm. what it is? Okay. Mm-hmm. I will comment more after. Okay. So um, basically, this it involves the child lying across the lap sub or being contained by the parents or the therapist. Often the child becomes angry, and this is when the therapists tighten their grip. Yep. You pin them down. You rubbed kn- knuckles in their ribs. You incited them to rage with lots of who's the boss taunting. The aim, apparently, is to show children that someone can control them and that they can feel safe at the same time. Okay, so Titus, is what they've recommended for him isn't that drastic. It's more like wrap them in a bear hug Mm -hmm. and, you know, don't let go even when they get mad. But I'm like, no, because when I'm mad, I don't want somebody to bear hug me. Oh, yeah. Like, no, absolutely not. Like, if he's mad, Mm -hmm. the last thing I'm going to do is hold him against his will. I don't like that. No, I think the police or something like right. Like if your child is more susceptible to calming down, if you do hug them, then Mm -hmm. yes, that's fine. But if your child is like resisting it, number one, you're telling you're basically teaching them that they can't say no. Yeah. And I would never, ever, ever want Titus to feel like he had to be in a situation like that. To an adult. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yes, Titus needs to mind adults. Right. But not like that i think it's a terrible idea i do too so during this therapy session candace was wrapped in a sheet with her head exposed and was directed to lie down on the floor two couch cushions were placed next to her sides then Jean was to lie across the cushions and candace making a cross with their bodies the goal was for candace to be submissive and for Jean to be in charge If all went well, Candace would connect visually or in some other type of way with Jean, the therapist would say. After Candace was unwrapped after the three-hour session, Jean moved to a chair. The therapist instructed Candace to crawl to the chair, then lie in her mother's arms like a baby, and then to let her mother feed her from a plate. I feel like this is so fucking weird. It's so weird. This is a 10-year-old, okay? Yeah. So Candace did as she was told. That's just traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else is she going to do? She does what the therapist tell her to do. Right. She looks into Jean's eyes and let her mother hold her. Jean was thrilled and sobbed uncontrollably. So she feels like she's submitting and, you know, mm-hmm. she has some control. Did you watch any videos of people doing? I did not, but I saw um, some, like, screenshots of this particular video I'm about to discuss. And it's horrifying is it of this specific mm-hmm. okay when i was researching this mm-hmm. i don't know why i i guess i just decided i thought it was just too much it is for a me lot. to handle because my son's in so many therapies mm-hmm. but 
I watched this one video of this family with an adopted son. Mm-hmm. And he was going through this same therapy and he like they were interviewing him. And he's like, no, I hate it. I don't want to do it. But like well, at first he's calmly explaining what happens and like what's the end result is supposed to be. Yeah. And then like while they're showing it being done, he's sitting there screaming bloody murder, obviously terrified. <coughs> I was so distraught by the video. I could not watch the end of it because I hate it. I felt so bad for this little boy. Like that is like if yeah if it makes him closer to his adoptive parent it's not for the right reason no not at all it's because he's scared it's yes it's like it's it's instilling fear in the child right like if i don't love them the Mm -hmm. right way they're gonna put me through torture and torment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so when the two-week course was over candace would be reborn the rebirthing session begins on april 18th 2000 and it is being videotaped And here we go, guys. This is where it's about to get, for me, really hard to fathom and to even talk about. Like, it makes me sick to my stomach. Mm -hmm. So, um, trigger warning, I guess. Yeah. Uh, It's pretty rough. It's about to get pretty... Especially uh, if your child is in therapy. Yeah. It's really like Or if you have a child with special needs, autism, you know, anything. Yeah, I'm not a squeamish person, but like this, when I researched it, it's traumatic. I could not do it, dude. Mm -hmm. So the session's being videotaped, and Candace is told by her therapist, Watkins and Ponder, to imagine yourself as a teeny baby inside your mother's womb and what it felt like. Warm. It felt tight because her stomach was all around you. Ponder, who is one of Candace's therapists, says, what do you think you thought about when you were in there? And Candace says, I thought I was going to die. Ponder says, you thought you were going to die in there? Yeah. Jean Newmaker is heard saying, I'm so excited. I'm going to have a brand new baby. I hope it's a girl. I'm going to love her. I'm going to love to hold her. I'm going to tell her stories. I'm going to keep her very safe. Every day we'll be together and she'll be with me forever. This poor girl. Mm Mm-hmm. A videotape of the session shows Candace telling them that she has a memory of being dropped from a window two flights up and that she had a nightmare last night in which she was murdered by her mother. She tells them that she wants to feel safe. Candace was told that she should scream and cry like a baby and wriggle out, wriggle out of the blanket and away from the people lying on top of her. They said, you're going to be going through the birth canal and promised while you're in the womb, you'll have pretty plenty of air to breathe. Watkins assistant Julie Ponder tells Candace to take off her shoes and lie down in a fetal position on a blue flannel. I'm going to just start that whole sentence over. I'm just, I don't know what's wrong with me today. (laughs) It's okay. Watkins assistant Julie Ponder tells Candace to take off her shoes and lie down in a fetal position on a blue flannel sheet. In the corner of of the room, a video camera records the session. You'll have lots of air to breathe, she tells Candace again. Candace lies down on her left side in the fetal position. Ponder tightly wraps her, gathering the four corners of the sheet at the top of Candace's head and twists them together. Watkins walks into the room and props up four pillows on both sides of Candace. So basically what they're trying to do, guys, is simulate, simulate, is that the right word? Mm -hmm. Simulate a birth canal. Simulate. A birth canal. And basically, this child is supposed to push its way out of the birth canal and be reborn to its new mother. It's just bizarre. So bizarre. 
So Watkins and Ponder were joined by office manager Britta St. Clair and her boyfriend intern Jack McDaniel, neither of whom was a trained therapist. Watkins says, if the baby doesn't decide to be born, she will die. When the baby decides to be born, it's a wonderful thing. And Ponder says, so little baby, are you ready to be reborn? God, this poor little girl. Mm-hmm. And Candace says, uh-huh. The four adults weighing a combined total of 673 pounds against Candace's 70 pounds began to apply pressure by pushing to reenact birth contractions. Watkins is at Candace's feet. St. Clair leans her back against Candace's knees. McDaniel lies next to St. Clair along Candace's chest. Ponder is at Candace's head, holding the sheet tightly closed in her left hand. Jean is told to stay near Candace's head where she is supposed to emerge from the womb and to speak to Candace through the top of the sheet. And Ponder says, come out head first. You have to push really hard with your feet. If you stay in there, you're going to die and your mommy's going to die. This wow. is so traumatic. Like I just. What in what mm-hmm. world do they, do they think that this helps? Yeah. Like it's if disgusting. you don't come out, you're going to die. Yeah. Why would you tell a child that? I have no idea. Candace quickly becomes confused and uncomfortable. In the video, Candace is heard saying, whoever's pushing on my head, it's not helping. Who's sitting on me? I can't do it. I can't do it. She starts crying and she says, my hands come out first. Ten minutes into the session, she's giving up. She says, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't do it. It's too dark under here. Please quit pushing on my head. I can't do it. Somebody is sitting on top of me. A minute later, the child proclaims that she's going to die. Ponder asks her if she wants to die, to which she replies, no, but I'm about to. Ugh. That just breaks my heart. Still begging for air, she screams, please, please stop pushing. I can't breathe. Okay, I'm dying. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Watkins and Ponder reply back, you want to die? Okay, then die. Go ahead. Die right now. God. And Candace says, okay, I'm dying. 2.38, she says, I'm going to die. 3.30, we're still going on. She says, I want to die. Oh, I'm sorry. This is, I said that incorrectly. I was, I thought this was the time, but this is how many minutes into it. So 14.38, she says, I'm going to die. 15.30, she says, I want to die. 16.08, she says, can you let me have some oxygen? I mean, like, you want me to die for real? Ponder says, "Uh (gasps) uh-huh. Yeah. Dude, they don't care. Die right now and go to heaven, she questions. And Ponder says, go ahead and die right now. For real, for real. Candace says, okay, I'm dead. Watkins says, it's not always easy to live. You have to be really strong to live a life, a human life. At 17 minutes and seven seconds in, there's labored breathing from Candace. And she says, get off. I'm sick. Get off. Where am I supposed to come out? Where? But how can I get there? Watkins replies, just go ahead and die. It's easier. It takes a lot of courage to be born. 18 minutes and 26 seconds in, Candace says, you said you would give me oxygen. Watkins says, you got to fight for it. 20 minutes later, still begging for help, Candace says, please, you said you would give me oxygen. She gags and she vomits. Oh, my God. I mean, like, seriously, at this point, 
yeah. at this point let her out if she's vomiting yeah at this point like mm-hmm. the game is over it's disgusting like i just i this whole thing like it was so hard to read yeah and just repeating it i'm just like mind blown so she gags and vomits and says i'm throwing up i just threw up i gotta poop i gotta poop I mean, you know something is wrong. There's clearly something wrong if she's throwing up. And saying she's about to poop. Yeah. Ponder says, go ahead. And Candace replies, uh, I'm going in my pants. Watkins says, stay there with the poop and vomit. Oh, my God. The adults keep going, calling her a quitter and a twerp, telling her that she gets to be stuck in her own puke and poop. God, that... This is not even therapy at this point. It is is torture. Literally torture. Torture. 23 minutes and 22 seconds in, Candace says, help. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. It's hot. I can't breathe. So new maker now, mommy over here says, I'm so excited to have this baby. I'm waiting for you to love you and hold you. Baby, I love you already. I'll hold you and love you and keep you safe forever. Don't give up on your life before you have it. Disgusting. Such lovely encouragement. Right. Candace becomes quiet. Ponder and Watkins order her to scream for her life. She's gagging, but she says no. Ponder digs in, repositions herself, breathing hard and grunting while pushing on Candace with her hands and body. Candace gasps for air, then whimpers. Ponder says she needs more pressure over here so she can't, so she really needs to fight if she wants air. Okay, she's really been fighting for like 20 minutes now, so... 40 minutes into Candace trying to escape the adult's hold, Jean asks, baby, do you want to be born? Candace replies, no, very weakly. This would be the last word Candace Newmaker ever utters. Watkins says, Candace is used to making her life everyone else's problem. She's not used to living her own life. To which Ponder replies, quitter, 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 quit, 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 quit. She's a quitter. McDaniel says, this baby doesn't want to live. She's a quitter. Candace stays quiet. Seven minutes pass, and Ponder places her hand inside again. She says, she's pretty sweaty, which is good. It's wet inside there. Yeah, probably from vomit, poop, and sweat. Mm-hmm. Watkins, Jester, Jester. Gesters. 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 Gesters, yes. <laughs> to Ponder, putting her hand to her face to ask, if Candace is breathing. Oh, I'm not sure. I touched her face and it's just sweaty, Ponder says. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. She doesn't answer. We could do this forever. Just stay right here. Jean is then ordered by Watkins to leave the room because, and I quote, Candace is able to pick up on your sorrow. Jean goes to an upstairs room to watch on a TV monitor. Watkins asks McDaniel and St. Clair to leave St. Clair to leave six minutes later. They go to where Jean is to watch the session on the monitor. Watkins and Ponder are alone in the room with Candace, bundled in the sheet, still in quiet. They work four more minutes, then they decide to check on her. Watkins, let's talk to the twerp. They unwrap her. When the blanket is removed, Candace is blue and there's vomit on her face. There's a smear of blood around her nose. Oh, there she is. She's sleeping in her vomit, Watkins says. Candace, Watkins says. Candace, she repeats louder. It's now 10.53 a.m. and the videotape is still rolling. Jean runs into the room. Candace is not breathing. Jean and Ponder start doing CPR. 
Watkins calls 911 at 10.56 a.m. After a night on life support at a children's hospital, the little girl who had dreamed of being murdered by her own mother dies. The cause of death was mechanical asphyxiation. God. She suffered a brainstem herniation and a cerebral oedema. I hope I said that correctly. Eleven times she had told the adults that she was going to die. She was smothered, the doctor wrote, when she, and I quote, was restrained during therapy session. Sickening. It is so, so unbelievably sad. You know, honestly, like, if I were to ever do anything like that, the moment my child is like, I'm going to die. Get them the hell out of there. I would 100% be like, okay, this is too much. Like, what the hell was just the mom thinking? Obviously nothing because... Idiot. A year later, Watkins and Ponder, the unlicensed... Oh, great. Quack job therapist were tried and uh, convicted of reckless child abuse, resulting in the death and received 16-year prison sentences. God, they should have got the death penalty. Absolutely. Britta St. Clair and Jack McDaniel pleaded guilty to criminally negligent child abuse and were given 10 years probation and 1,000 hours of community service, service in a plea bargain. Jean Newmaker pleaded guilty to neglect and abuse charges and was given a four-year suspended sentence, after which the charges were expunged from her record. God. Watkins was paroled in June 2008 under intense supervision with restrictions on contact with children or counseling work, having served approximately seven years of her 16-year sentence. That's bullshit. Rebirthing therapy was banned in the state of Colorado approximately one year after Candace's death. Candace's law now bans reenactment of the birthing experience. Good. That is so disgusting. And that's it. Like, these motherfuckers, like, that's not therapy. That was torture, taunting, abuse, just absolute, like, evilness. Yeah, that was child abuse. You called her a quitter and a twerp, told her to die, told her to sleep in her poop and vomit. Like, what? And that's therapy? Like, that's supposed to help a child? Yeah, okay. This, like, this shit rocked my world. Yeah. Like, and I thought, I thought it was something good that needed to be covered. But like I said, Ansley was like, that's so lame, mom. That's not even scary. Like, no, No, that's that's true crime. Like, it's, it's, yeah. That's, yeah, true crime in all of its glory. Like, this is an everyday thing. This, you know, dumbass mother of this well-to-do nurse Mm -hmm. takes her daughter in for a therapy that killed her it's not therapy like i don't i can't understand what mother would be like yeah that sounds good that sounds like a plan yeah Yeah, no absolutely and you know like this has arisen some anxiety in me because titus is you know gonna start that feeding therapy soon and i talked to them and i was like look you know I've heard really good things about feeding therapy and I've heard really bad things about feeding therapy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I mean, my son obviously needs it, mm-hmm. but you know, I just want to make sure that, you know, everybody involved is comfortable. And they told me that if I am not comfortable with anything mm-hmm. that they would stop. Yeah. And if you they get don't be there the entire time, right? Yes. Okay. And if they <clears throat> don't stop, I will raise hell. Oh, yeah. I will punch a nurse. I don't care. Yeah. Because my child is most important. And yeah. if he's sitting there screaming. Yeah. And they're holding not, him. No. It's not therapy at that point. No, it's literally like, 
torture and yeah. no it's mm -mm. Mm -hmm. and i will leave and i will never go back and mm -hmm. i will mm -hmm. press charges whatever i need to do because mm -hmm. no way dude that is so disgusting honestly that mother should never be able to adopt another child absolutely never work in childcare. should never be a pediatric nurse ever again mm -hmm. no way dude yeah yeah it just it shook me so i felt it needed to be discussed i hope you guys i hope this was new to a lot of you yeah mm. so sad mm -hmm. well i guess we'll take a quick break and everybody can kind of just like get over that because oh my god that is so sad mm -hmm. and next we got to hear the cliffhanger uh ending woohoo yeah i'm excited <laughs> all right we'll be back And we're back for part two. Hello. Hello. All right. So now we get the ending of the cliffhanger that we've all been waiting for for a week. Because Alyssa sucks. Yes, I do suck. So um, just kind of a little recap in case people kind of forgot some details. Yeah, I was going to. I was hoping you would do that. Um, so Ruth Finley was... Um, <clears throat> attacked when she was 16 and branded on her thighs and now she's got some crazy weird psycho guy stalking her and like sending her tons of letters sending letters to the media sending letters to um the detectives on her case and sending letters to you know places that she does business like the utility company like telling them to cut off her power and her gas and um draining her bank accounts and things like that um she was kidnapped by this man the poet mm -hmm. um and later was stabbed uh like two or three times by him and um they're still having a very hard time like figuring out fig figuring out who this man is so shit's bonkers if you guys didn't listen to the last episode go do it now right um so if you guys remember that Lieutenant Drowatsky was um, the head of the, po the case of the poet, mm -hmm. um, but in January of 1980, Drowatsky handed the case over to Captain Mike Hill because he got a promotion um, of vice and organized crime. All so, right. Well, let's hope Mike Hill him. does some good research, some good investigating. Um, so immediately, Captain Hill wondered if Ruth or Ed had caused the injury to Ruth. Yeah. Um, this is taking place right after the stabbing um, that occurred. But he quickly just got rid of that idea because the medical report stated that she, there was no way that she could have stabbed herself and there was no way that Ed could have been there to stab her. That was my question, too. Yeah. It's the, the angle of the stab wound did not match a stab that she could have done herself so okay um so the poet noticed that the case was being handed over and he did what he does best right writes a letter to captain hill he knows everything he does wow um he wrote there once was a captain who had an asshole for a heart wow yeah how poetic 
<laughs> He's the poet. So. <laughs> so that Christmas Eve, the phone lines to the Finley's house were cut for a second time, causing Southwestern Bell to have to like dig in the ground and replace them. Mm. Um, Ed and Ruth also installed a back gate alarm system and Captain Hill installed a surveillance camera in their backyard. He also assigned detectives to monitor, monitor them for 24 hours every day in the Finley's dining room. And Ruth felt so bad for these detectives because they were bored. They're literally just looking at a monitor in her dining room for 24 hours a day. So she would make them desserts mm-hmm. and um, she would read them the letters from the poet, like just to entertain them. Wow. Right. January 25th, 1980, Ruth reported to police that she had received a call at work where the poet told her that he had left her a surprise in the office lobby. Ooh. In the lobby's phone booth, police discovered a 12-inch butcher knife wrapped in a red bandana. <gasps> Two witnesses reported seeing a man who matched Ruth's description of the poet using the phone booth that day. Left with the knife was another poem which read, Shut your eyes and think of the 12-inch blade. Will you remember the hole it made? Dream of me and obey my commands. Think of me with a knife in my hands. Oh, my God. Within the next few weeks, the letters increased. And on February 19th, the poet sent Ruth a Valentine's Day letter that said, Here's to you a tender valentine, red with blood and tied with twine. Nothing too much for a valentine gone from here by whim of mind nothing too much for valentine gone from here by whim of mind Hmm. and this valentine came with a strip of red bandana in the envelope there was also a letter with the red bandana in the poem that said i'm about ready to start telling about you now Mm, she's pissing him off yeah it will just be your word against mine well he's a crazy person so yes so to ensure that ruth would be safe ed started driving her to and from work because he's a good husband yes he is i like him with his shotgun in the me too (laughs) (laughs) so the police had already investigated 300 possible suspects but none of them were anywhere close to being the poet detectives came up with a plan to put ruth in a bulletproof vest and have her walk through downtown wichita while six to eight officers shadowed her wearing everyday clothes oh my god what if she had shot in the head (laughs) i know right like it's such a dangerous place not doing it (laughs) i would be like oh no thanks like this dude has already stabbed me they're just trying to see if he'll approach her huh yeah but he never did so damn of course he didn't because he knows everything yes i mean honestly though like bulletproof vests are pretty thick you know what i mean i feel like you kind of know like she's a woman yeah i think i mean and if she's going through downtown which she's probably scared probably has anxiety written all over her face yeah probably tell that she's being and plus like if he's sitting there just watching her if these police officers are like you know shadowing her and like they're always in distance of her Mm -hmm. you know like that's obvious too so who knows So the poet continued sending letters to businesses in Wichita area. More than 50 
in a six-month time span. One of the letters was sent to a mortuary where, okay, so I was like, he's sending letters to places of business. I thought I had already covered that, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) that comes now. Okay. One of the letters was sent to a mortuary mortuary, Mortuary. (laughs) where it stated that they should reach out to Ruth because she would be needing their services soon. Wow. Letters were also sent to the gas and electric company instructing them to turn off the power and gas to the Finley's home. Oh, my God. The health department was led to believe that Ruth was spreading venereal disease. Wow. Due to a letter from the poet. That is so fucked. He also contacted a construction company and told them to tear out the driveway at their home. Oh, my God. He's just annoying at this point. Yeah, it's like... Go away. You're just ruining every aspect of her life besides, like, her actual life. Yeah. Idiot. The DMV was notified about Ruth's hazardous and dangerous (laughs) driving, and the poet requested that they take away her license because of it. What a dickwad. I know, right? My God. Um, The poet also instructed the bank to transfer all of Ruth's funds and... A single $5 bill was given to a florist where he requested a single black rose to be sent to Ruth. Mm. So, Lieutenant Drowatsky sent letters from the poet to Dr. Murray S. Myron, who was a prominent psycholinguist, to analyze them. Dr. Murray had worked on the Son of Sam case in 1977. Wow. Which gained, gained him national attention. Dr. Myron wrote up a profile of the poet stating that he was clearly and severely psychotic. Um, God, I meant to look up this word. Virulently. Virulently. It's V-I-R-U-L-E-N-T-L-Y. I have no idea. I don't know either. I'm not smart. (laughs) Um... So that word, pathological, schizophrenic, extremely dangerous, a wily and elusive quarry, Mm. and a loner. Mm -hmm. He also mentioned that the letters from the poet and BTK were widely similar, but he didn't believe that they were the same person. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you guys remember, but um, they really thought that the poet could be BTK Mm -hmm. because BTK and him had very similar writing styles Mm -hmm. and BTK was just known to send letters because he's an idiot. (laughs) Although Dr. Myron didn't believe the poet and BTK were the same person, detectives still had their suspicions due to the poet consistently talking about a fox that he had killed. What? The reason why this was a striking similarity is because in 1977, BTK had killed Nancy Joe Fox. Oh. Yeah. Around this time, the poet had written this to Ruth. Mingled with blood and tears from my stormy life, tortured oppression needs death to end the strife. With no repentance, I will be free. Locked in her grave, I will return to being me. Hmm. So, an anonymous call from a woman made Captain Hill and his team feel hopeful when the woman spoke about a man that resembled the poet. Okay. The man had worked in Wichita and had been fired from his job seven months earlier and then moved into a trailer in Oklahoma City. And this was good news because in June, Ruth had received a letter from the poet postmarked in, guess where? Oklahoma City. Yes. Yes. 
Okay, maybe we're getting somewhere. The psychological profile of this man also matched the psychological profile of the poet. So finally, the team was making some headway. They flew the man back to Wichita for a police lineup, but Ruth said that it wasn't the poet. Oh, no. Despite how similar they looked. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, this made like they had such high hopes that it just came crashing down. Wow. Because they were certain that this man was the poet. <laughs> I've done that like three times. Sorry for the bang, guys. The poet continued his harassment towards Ruth leaving an ice pig and a bottle of urine on her front porch. My God. It's like nowadays, though, like they could test the urine and like, bam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hopefully. I think maybe. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) He also left a bag of poop. So. Oh. There were Molotov uh, cocktails and broken glass on the steps of the Finleys. He broke the lock on their gate and sliced their garden hose, which is kind of like, why? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, he's just annoying. Like, why would you do that? Or like, honestly, at this point, I would be like, is it even him? Yeah. Or do I just bad neighbors? Yeah. Or like, I, I just, it is so bizarre to me that he has done all of these things. Like, literally steps away from her house on her front porch. Mm-hmm. And y'all can't catch this mug? Like, I mean, Dr. whatever his name was, he said he was wily and elusive. So, mm-hmm. um, Where was I? Um, he broke and sliced their garden. Okay. Ruth would find firecrackers, cigarettes, hair, matches, and trash in their mailbox. Oh, my God. There was also a rock wrapped in the poet's signature red, red bandana along with a pair of wire cutters. <sighs> so in December, Ruth received a Christmas letter from the poet. Twas the night before Xmas and all through the house, Ruth wasn't stirring. You're as quiet as a mouse. Your stocking was tight around your neck with care. <sighs> I hope the lieutenant would not soon be there. Ruth and Ed were watching a movie in their basement when the wreath on their front window was set on fire. Oh my god. The flames cracked the window letting out a loud boom. Ed ran Ed ran upstairs and knocked the wreath down and stomped the flames out and then proceeded to grab a pair of garden shears and took off running into the night screaming that he was going to kill the poet. Mhm. So, Ed is fed up. Yeah. Ed is pissed. So, Chief Lemunyan, who was a highly respected and well-liked administrator, was constantly harassed by the media about why the poet hadn't been caught yet. Yeah. And if the poet and BTK were the same person. I'm just like, why have they not moved? (laughs) I don't know. Honestly, I would have for sure at this point. Crazy. So Chief Lemunyan refused to ask for outside help because all egotistical chiefs and captains and whatever mm-hmm. never want to reach out because their egos are so big. I mean, imagine like if they got the FBI in, they probably would have cut them like that. Yeah. You know? Um, but Chief Lemunyan had full faith in his detectives. So whatever. <laughs> Um, on September 4th, 1981, Drowatsky told Lemunyan that the poet had sent a letter saying that after he killed Ruth, he was going after Lemunyan's wife, Sharon. Oh. 
he revealed that he knew the make and model of her car and the route she took from work to her house. So maybe he'll do something now. This is when Lemonian decided to step away from his administrative role and take a personal interest in the case. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Imagine that. That same evening, he took home all of the files on the poet and went through every single document while making detailed notes. After hours and hours uh, and days of going through each document, Lemonian finally figured out who the poet was. What? Literally after a weekend, he figured it out. It's a cop. So, September 11th, Lemunyan called a meeting with 16 of his officers in a windowless basement room in the county courthouse. He wanted this meeting to be as confidential as possible. <gasps> he sat down at the head of the table and announced to his officers the identity of the poet. Do you want to guess who? It's a freaking cop. It can only be a cop because he knows all the things that have happened to Ruth. So, he says... The poet is me, Ruth Finley herself. Shut up. <laughs> oh, my God. And before the officers had any time to object, Lemonian started listing reasons as to why he was right. He's wrong. Number one, all of Ruth's encounters with the poet happened in public places, but yet not a single person witnessed it. Mm-hmm. She was, you know, abducted in downtown, taken to a park. She was stabbed in a uh, shopping mall parking lot. Mm -hmm. Somebody would have had to seen her, you know? Mm -hmm. None of the Finley's neighbors or station police ever witnessed anything suspicious, and there were never any footprints discovered. Mm. Number three. When Ruth was abducted and taken to the park, police had only found one set of footprints belonging to none other than Ruth Finley. And if you guys remember, during this abduction, the poet had struck her in the face with a piece of concrete, but there was never an injury. I just sunk so far down into my seat. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch. I know. Um, So Ruth called the Central Investigations Office in the police department instead of calling 911 when she was stabbed. She had driven to the gas station, got out, made the call, got back in her car, and then drove all the way back to her house which would be virtually impossible with the knife sticking out of her side because it was more towards her back Mm -hmm. when captain hill took over the case ed ruth and the police were the only ones that knew about it yeah as soon as a camera was installed in the birdhouse which only the finleys and the police knew about the poets stopped coming around the house Uh and number seven the poets letters to ed and ruth and the eagle beacon um like stopped when uh fin when the finleys went on vacation but they started right up again as soon as they got back what a psycho ruth you suck i wouldn't say that just yet oh god so lemonian thought that since he didn't have a personal relationship with ruth and ed that he could see the situation more clearly because um Drowatsky and the finleys were very close like him and his wife were very close with ruth and ed and all the police who were like you know having to monitor 24 hours a day mm-hmm. in the finleys home they grew close to ruth and ed because they're you know in such close proximity to them and yeah you know so for the next three days, the officers were instructed to do 24-hour surveillance on the Finleys with narcotics and vice officers assisting. Lemunyan told his men not to say a word about the surveillance, even to their spouses, because if the media got any wind of what was happening, he would fire every single person in the room. Wow. 
Drowatsky was devastated to hear this news because he and his wife had, like I said, grown so close to the Finleys. Yeah. Many of the officers thought that Lemunian was wrong considering all of the doctors, psychologists, and linguists had sworn that Ruth and the poet were not the same person. Right. Lemunian said that he didn't believe any of the experts and he didn't believe anything Ruth said either. Mm. Lemunian asked Dr. Scrag again if Ruth could be the poet and he said no, most assuredly. Sounds like he just wants to be the hero here. Right. He then gave the medical reports to his own personal physician to see if Ruth could have inflicted the stab wound herself, but the doctor agreed with Ruth's doctor, saying that it was impossible. This didn't deter Lemunian from thinking Ruth was the poet, though. Mm -hmm. September 14th, the surveillance of the Finleys began and would last for two weeks. They documented every single thing the Finleys did and every move that they made. And at least one officer and a helicopter would follow them at all times. Wow. So, three days into the surveillance, a helicopter had the first breakthrough. At 8.30 a.m., Ed was caught driving his car into the Eastgate Mall parking lot and stopped at a mailbox. Ruth reached out of the window and placed some envelopes into the slot, and then Ed drove off. Mm. At 1.30, a postal inspector opened the mailbox for police and retrieved all the mail inside. There was a personal letter from the Finleys, two bill payments, and then two letters addressed to Ruth, one to K-A-K-E-T-V, that read, Hickory Dickory Dock. Oh, my God. The name on his face is Smock. Heat the iron for the brand. Cooperate for games planned. Hickory Dickory Dock. Unfortunately, this didn't provide enough evidence. What? Lemunian made the point that it could be seen as someone placing more mail into the mailbox after the Finleys had driven away because, like, it had been, like, seven hours in between the Finleys dropping the mail off and them actually getting the mail out, so. Okay. On September 26th, Ruth and Ed returned to the same mailbox at 4.15 p.m. Um, color photographs were snapped of Ruth placing mail into the mailbox. And as soon as Ed drove away, an undercover cop car pulled in front of the mailbox to block anyone else from putting anything inside of it. Mm-hmm. He popped the hood to make it seem like he had car trouble so that no one would, you know, become suspicious of, like, him just being parked in front of a mailbox. Yeah. Um, And the postal inspector came, and once again, they retrieved the mail. There were four letters from the Finleys in the pile of mail. A utility bill, a payment to JCPenney's, a personal letter, and a poet letter addressed to Ruth. Oh, my God. The letter said, no dumbass bitch will get the fucking law to get me. The Postal Service resealed the envelopes, and the bills were sent to their designated destinations, and the letter from the poet was sent to Ruth. The police then retrieved them to establish a chain of evidence. Oh, my God. The next morning, Ruth got the letter from the poet and Ed delivered it to police as per usual. Mm. Detectives went to the post office and went through thousands and thousands of envelopes where the Finleys had mailed their payments. They were looking for a match to Ruth's handwriting. Police also went through the drop box in Southwestern Bell where where several letters from the poet were found. Mm -hmm. 
that same day, a suspicious employee where, um, okay, an employee who was suspicious mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, at Ruth's work tipped the police off. So they searched her office at the phone company and found a book of poetry. What? A, yeah. A sheet of torn carbon paper with the poet's handwriting. <gasps> a red bandana wrapped oh in a used yellow Kleenex in Ruth's desk. And there were also pieces of big chief toilet, or not toilet, sorry, <laughs> tablet paper <laughs> in the trash with the poet's handwriting on them. <laughs> yeah. Ah, I hate her. <laughs> well, um, don't oh, say wait. that just yet. Maybe the poet's setting her up. All right. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I'm so confused. So the police began the process of obtaining search warrants for the Finley's home because there still wasn't enough evidence to tie Ruth to the letters despite oh everything God. that they had found. Shoot me. Until one day when Lemonian and his wife returned from a police convention in New Orleans, they found a letter waiting for Sharon in their mailbox. This letter had been mailed from Southwestern Bell on Friday, which was the day before police started monitoring the mailbox. Mm -hmm. The lower half of the page had been torn off. Microscopic analysis proved that the torn part of the letter sent to Sharon matched a piece of some of the ripped paper found in Ruth's trash can at work. Oh, my God. Analysis on... It's a co-worker. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) All these thoughts are going through my head. (laughs) Okay, we'll see. Analysis on the stamps also showed that the stamps used to pay their bills came from the same cardboard box as the stamps found on the most recent letters from the poet. They finally had their proof. Now the only thing left was to figure out whether Ed was involved or not. So on October 1st, Ed was told there was another letter from the poet for him to pick up because they always return the letters back to the Finleys. Mm Mm-hmm. Ed met Captain Hill and Detective Jack Leon, um, who was a newcomer on the case. Just He was there just kind of to try to add, like, some new, you know, perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and um, he met them in an office. They then brought Ed to an interview room where they read him his rights. And Ed was confused, but always thought that the, the police were right. So he figured that if they needed to read him his rights, he wouldn't object to it. Mm-hmm. They questioned him about his childhood and his job. They began with Ed's hospital stay right when the poet started his harassment on Ruth and ending with Ruth's most recent letter. Hill was confident that Ed had been unaware of what Ruth was doing. Two hours into the interview when Hill told Ed, it's coming down today, I know who the poet is. Ed was obviously very excited because, I mean, he had been waiting years for the torment on his wife to end. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, I hope the hell you do. Let's go get him. Hill then presented Ed with some pictures of Ruth mailing four letters at Eastgate Mall. And he told Ed, one of those is a poet letter. I can verify she has mailed five poet letters in the last two weeks. Ed responded by saying, you've got to be kidding. Hill told Ed about all the evidence found in Ruth's office, and Ed just sat there absolutely shocked. Oh, my God. Hill told Ed that the poet was Ruth, and all Ed could say was, oh, my God, over and over again. 
Seeing all the shock on Ed's face, knowing that he had just hit him with an insane amount of information, Mm -hmm. he assured Ed that they weren't mad at Ruth and only wanted her to get the help that she obviously desperately needed. Oh, clearly. He also also told Ed that the only way to eliminate him for good was for him to take a polygraph. And so he agreed. Mm Mm-hmm. And the polygraph took about an hour, and Ed passed it with flying colors. Wow. Detectives and Ed searched the Finley house and found a book of poems called Maniac and Other Poems. What the fuck? They found pencils, pens, letters, carbon paper, a ruler guide, a writing tablet, and pieces of red bandana. Okay, they're not mad at her. No, she should be jailed. Well... (laughs) Just keep listening. Okay. (laughs) I'm just, I can't. I understand, but it's actually really sad. Oh, gosh. Okay. So Ed was obviously very shocked, but at the same time, he was relieved because if Ruth was the poet, then at least she was safe. And (laughs) this obsessed stalker wasn't actually trying to kill her. Oh, my God. 5 p.m. that afternoon, Drowatsky met Ruth in the lobby of her place of work and asked her to come to the station to examine some mugshots with him, which she readily agreed to do because she's done it so many times. Mm-hmm. They took her to the same room Ed had been questioned in where Hill and Leon were waiting. Hill read Ruth her rights and then asked her the same round of questions that they had previously asked Ed. Um... And Ruth, just like Ed, was confused at what was going on, but she cooperated with them regardless. Mm -hmm. Hill explained to Ruth that either her or Ed could have done any one of the things the poet had done. And Ruth replied, we've discussed that. We've said, you know, they probably suspect one of us. Mm -hmm. Um, Hill had always been really friendly to Ruth, but he decided to change up his tactics. So he placed a pile of letters on the table and asked Ruth if she had written any of them, to which she replied she hadn't. What if I called you a liar? Because I got evidence that shows you have. Hmm. Ruth was shocked by his sudden change in demeanor. Now, do you want to keep playing your game? You've got a problem, lady. (laughs) (laughs) Ruth asked when she, um, Ruth asked, like, when she had sent those letters. And Hill showed her the same surveillance photo of her putting mail into the mailbox at Eastgate Mall that he had shown Ed. He then listened. Okay, he, he then listed items that the police had found in her trash can at work. And he said, Ruthie, why? It's time. It's time to tell me why you were doing this. Hill kept pressing her, saying, Why did you make up a story about the abduction? Sweetheart, why did you do it? And Ruth replied, saying that she didn't know as her eyes filled with tears. Oh, my God. Why did you stab yourself? I don't know, she replied. Hill asked her about the the attack in Fort Scott, but she insisted that it was real and that it had happened to her, which is when she was 16. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm not mad at you. I just want an explanation. She replied, saying that she didn't have one. So Ruth started admitting that she had written the letters and left the ice pick, urine and poop on her porch and everything. Oh my God. And everything else that the poet had done, but she wasn't sure if what she was remembering was real. She had no memory of the acts and that she was, that she was telling him about. She knew that she had done terrible things because Hill had told her that she did. 
Ruth described stabbing herself at Townie's Mall, and when Hill asked if she meant to hurt herself as much as she did, she said she didn't know. She recounts writing letters, but had no idea how long it took her to write them, and that they are to write them, and all... What? What did I type? <laughs> she had how long it took her to write them, and... I guess, like, all she felt when she, like, looked at the letters is that they belonged to someone else and not herself. Okay. I don't know. My mind is just, like, (laughs) I don't even know what that sound was, but that's what my mind feels like. (laughs) I understand. I feel that, too. (laughs) So, Hill asked Ruth how she felt, and she said that she wished she was dead. Ruth, right now, the world has come to an end, but it hasn't. Do you think you need to see a doctor? And Ruth replied, I am sure I do. I must be crazy. That night, Ruth was taken to St. Joseph's Hospital, where she was placed under 24-hour-a-day psychiatric watch. Wichita authorities were trying to decide whether or not they were going to press charges on Ruth. The poet case had cost them $370,000. Holy crap. And that's in the 70s. Yeah. Oof. Some detectives were sympathetic towards Ruth, while others, including Chief Lemonian, thought, you know, she was a criminal and needed to be punished. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, though, after reviewing Ruth's psychological report, the Sedwick um, County District Attorney announced that he would not be pressing charges because Ruth's actions as the poet were not malicious. (laughs) What were they? Attention seeking? We'll see. Okay. I'm going to talk about it. (laughs) My God. So, November 2nd, 1981, Ruth went into a a twice-a-week therapy with Dr. Andrew T. Pickens. They began the process of going through Ruth's depression-filled childhood, and Ruth composed lengthy poems as a form of therapy to express her emotions. And at first, Ruth told Dr. Pickens that her childhood was impoverished but normal. The letters as the poet painted a very different story, though. They were filled with violence, and Ruth kept getting visions of a red bandana. She didn't know why, but it filled her with revulsion, just Mm -hmm. seeing this red bandana. Mm -hmm. Three months into therapy, Ruth and Dr. Pickens finally found the source of Ruth's trauma. When she was just a little girl, her neighbor and family friend had used a red bandana to tie her up and then later took her to his barn and shoved the bandana in her mouth while he sexually abused her. Mm-hmm. The neighbor abused her for a year, which caused Ruth to feel guilty. Her parents punished her whenever she ran away or cried whenever the man was visiting them. Like, that's a huge sign. It's like, yeah, if your child is that scared of somebody, there's a problem. Yeah. Um, okay, I lost my place. Um, okay. Ruth began to feel like the abuse was her fault and that she was a bad girl and that she was evil at heart and deserved what was happening to her. Mm -hmm. The man even threatened to kill her if she ever spoke of the abuse. During the assaults, Ruth says she was floating off to heaven in order to deal with the abuse. She could see what was happening down below her to the little girl, but somehow it wasn't so bad if it wasn't me. I was just checking Mm -hmm. or I was just watching it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Mm -hmm. That's what she said. 
This is such a common thing amongst abuse survivors called disassociative disorder. Mm-hmm. This is when the victim experience, um, experiences a disconnect between their identity, consciousness, actions, and surroundings. They escape reality when this happens so that they can hold the traumatic experience back. Mm-hmm. Dr. Pickens suspected that because Ruth had buried the memories of her childhood childhood abuse for 43 years because remember her parents were like you can't cry yeah literally like if you show anything other than just being normal you are weak yeah Mm -hmm. the stress of ed being in the hospital and btk's reign of terror had forced her trauma to resurface wow the flood of all these um surfacing emotions caused her to create the poet that sounds like a split personality disorder, but it wasn't because the poet wasn't really a fully developed personality. Mm-hmm. It was basi- basically an alternate consciousness where Ruth had no memory or awareness of what she when, was doing. Yeah, she was like in her regular conscious mind. So for the next seven years, Ruth underwent intensive therapy with Dr. Pickens, where they slowly worked through her trauma. Through it all, Ed and her children stuck fiercely beside her. Wow. Chief Lemunyan, however, still thinks she's lying and that she knew every single thing that she was doing. He believes something may have happened to her in her childhood, but it's not what she says it is. Mm-hmm. And that is the poet. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. My mind was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's like... Uh, it's you know and it's like it's hard to say whether or not that's the truth because i mean that went on for four years yeah well you know part of me is like yeah right she knew what she was doing you know but like who's to say who's to say we don't know we don't know and like that's crazy shit you stab yourself you've got to have something off yeah and you have like no memory of doing it that's like how embarrassing though for her family and stuff yeah, but it's also kind of like, I can see it because, you know, I mean, despite the fact that her parents were the way they were, I mean, back then you just didn't, that you didn't talk about that kind of stuff. It was swept under the rug. Yeah. And imagine being in a household where nobody would listen to you. Yeah. Everybody told you to get over it, to, you know, you're being weak, you're being this, you're being that. You had to suppress every feeling you had. Literally, and for you know, like 43 years, you kept that so buried down below you. Yeah, I could totally see. I mean, and, and especially because you know, she basically kind of created this um dissociation because mm-hmm. while she's being abused, she's disassociating, and, right? Yeah. And I know that, um, that's how, like, um, what is it called? Like, not multiple personality disorder, but. DID what I can't remember what that stands for um disassociative identity identity disorder disorder. yeah Mm -hmm. that's how that is I mean I think that's what is that what I said she was diagnosed I believe so yeah that's literally like I watched a whole documentary about it it's like it seems like split personality disorder where it's like you know they have all these different Mm -hmm. alternates but it's really just their escape but you know when they are in these alternate alternate minds they don't know like not all of their like characters or whatever know everything that's happened that day or that week or that month or that year it's like they literally are another person person, yeah so i mean if 
if that is seriously what she has, then she 100% could have been the poet and not even known it. Oof. So, I mean, like, if she's looking at these letters. weird to think about. I know. Oh, my gosh. It's. Yeah, I'm on the fence. I don't know if I feel bad for her or if I'm, like, pissed at her. If she does have DID, for sure, I feel so bad for her because, I mean, from what all I've watched, I mean, that's. Very it's very serious. serious yeah and there's like you can't overcome it you just have to deal with it forever so wow well that definitely mm-hmm. was i think that was one of your best episodes really double yeah that Thank was good you. like how did you even find that so um my brother's girlfriend lauren actually sent me like a small tiktok video about it and i was okay. watching it going holy shit this is so insane yeah. like oh my god i never heard of it before me either wow. and it was just very sad to just i mean yeah i i personally just feel very bad for her i mean like this whole time you're doing this i'm like questioning okay was it her you know and you're like no it wasn't her and then you're like was it this person was it that her? you know like i'm questioning everybody like yeah yeah that was great though because that definitely made you think i knew who you know like what happened before this i wish i could have heard it from like a different standpoint because i want to know who i would think that it is but Mm -hmm. it is crazy too because like in the first first part you were like you know this sounds you know so fake like i, yeah. I can't even believe that it's real yeah and it's i'm sitting here thinking because it's really not <laughs> but i can totally see that because i mean so much stuff is happening yeah like even with the golden state killer you know who would like call his victims and torment them for weeks or months after raping them or whatever mm-hmm. he wasn't leaving like poop and broken glass and you know setting their wreaths on fire and like yeah you know surveillance wasn't happening and him not getting caught you know it just my question is how was the wreath on fire when they were downstairs watching a movie i mean she probably like did it before like he maybe ed went down before her and she like you know caught it on fire and then like ran down there and you know i have so many questions the window (sighs) you know cracked with the loud boom so they probably were like oh my god and ran up there and i mean i guess if your husband is um what's the word like not as a not aware but um i know what you're saying like yeah yeah like you know scotty if i were to do something like this he was kind of Oh, like oblivious like, yeah oblivious yeah. yeah like and scotty's not that way like if i were to catch he something would be like you're doing that shit bitch. he's like what are you doing <laughs> yeah yeah so well some husbands know. are that way where they i just mean really yeah really some really are and mm-hmm. i mean that's probably what happened you know and, and also like you know they had been married for 40 something years you, think you know somebody right and you know so you're sitting there thinking there's no way that my wife could do that yeah it's not course. even a thought in your head because you know you've loved this woman for so long you've been with her for so long that it, that does not make sense mm-hmm. you wouldn't even think it so Whew. i don't know but that story is very sad and um I didn't say this in the beginning of this part, but I did say it last episode in the first part that um, I got all my information from medium.com. Mm-hmm. That article is really great. I did not add all of the information that was in there. So if you guys want to go read it, mm-hmm. do it because there's so much more crazy stuff in there than oh. she did that I just really felt like I didn't have enough time to do. So, wow. 
I can't believe I've never heard of that. I know. Same. Like when I when I watched that TikTok, I was like, how have I not heard of this? Because that is crazy, especially because, you know, it's um, like not direct. It's indirectly um, connected to BTK. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. so weird. I'm like, is there a movie? There needs to be a movie if there isn't. I think I know there's a book. Okay. Um. There might be a movie. I don't know. Did you Google it? I'm I'm doing it right now. Okay. The book is um I didn't read it. I should have though, but you can Google it or whatever. It's like you can I think you can only buy it on Amazon. So it says here that Netflix and Twenty One Laps are producing a feature adaptation of the poet. And this was just an article from April. So maybe eventually there will be something. That would be a crazy movie. The The book is called Little Girl Fly Away by Jean Stone, if you want to read that. Okay. So, yeah, a movie would be literally insane, especially if you didn't know. Yeah. Like the story behind it. <laughs> so if there is a movie, I'm sorry, I ruined it for you guys. Oh, my gosh. But yeah, crazy crazy Mm -mm. well i guess that's it brooke do you want to give them all of our socials sure so uh go join our facebook group at for god's sake don't drink the jones juice follow us on instagram at don't drink the jones juice correct yes Mm -hmm. i always forget tiktok (laughs) at don't drink the don't drink the jones juice um you can buy our merch at storefrontier.com slash for God's sake, don't nope, don't, don't drink. drink the Jones juice. <laughs> JK, JK. Um, leave us a review on Apple oh, Podcasts. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Always love review. getting reviews. If you enjoy us, we enjoy you. Um, I think somebody gave us a four star at one point because we no longer have five stars. Rude. I know whoever you were. No. Tell us why. Because <laughs> I want to know what we did wrong. That's funny. I'm actually about to look that up right now because that made me sad when Aww. I saw it. I haven't checked them in forever. But if you like us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts podcast please and if you hate us don't thanks and also (laughs) and also um send us your own personal true crime slash paranormal stories to our email at don't drink the jones juice at gmail.com so we can do a listener juice because we don't have we do still have a five star do we yeah um i can't even like it won't even let me look at them for some reason. It says we have 5.0 out of 5. What is our podcast name again? For God's sake. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you, how are you seeing that? Uh, I just went to like our podcast and scrolled all the way down to the bottom. That's what I did too. Okay. I see. I just clicked on it and it said that we still have five stars, but I feel like one time when I looked, there was one that was four star. Maybe they deleted it (laughs) and they were like, my bad. Actually, you guys are pretty good. (laughs) A four star is not bad. Oh, there is, there is a four star. Really? If you go look um, at the bottom, if you look where all of our five star ratings are, Mm -hmm. there's like a little tiny bar below where the four stars are. Oh, I can't even see anything except for like the reviews, not the ratings. You don't see see this up here? Yeah. You see where the four stars is? There's like a... Oh, okay. I see. I see. I see. Let us Mm -hmm. know why. That's okay. (laughs) 
All right, guys, we're going to get out of here. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) For God's sake. Don't drink the Jones juice.